0: Hello and welcome to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. This week we're revisiting an event from the 2018 festival featuring Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie in conversation with Sinead Gleeson.
1: Hello there, thank you all so much uh, for your patience. Um, I'm so excited to be talking to Chimamanda tonight. I, I know all of you here who bought your tickets in a stampede know exactly who she is but in case you don't, let me tell you a little bit about her. Um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie uh, was born in Nigeria in 1977, and she grew up on a university campus in Nigeria, where her father was a professor and her mother was the first female registrar. She's the author of three novels, Purple Hibiscus, which in 2003 was awarded the Commonwealth Writers' Prize for Best First Book. In 2006, Half of a Yellow Sun, which won the Orange, now Women's Prize for Fiction, and Americana in 2013, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award. Her short story collection, The Thing Around Your Neck, was published in 2009, and two of her essays were delivered as TED Talks, The Danger of a Single Story, and We Should All Be Feminists. You will all obviously know that it was sampled by Beyoncé on the track, Flawless from Relate, but more on that later. Um, The talk was also, I think this is really interesting, published as a book in Sweden, where it's distributed to every 16-year-old in high school. Um, Her most recent work, which I'm delighted that she's going to read from tonight, is Dear Ajuele, or A Feminist Manifesto in 15 Suggestions. She's also the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant, and last year was elected into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, which is one of the highest honours for intellectuals in the United States. She's also received honorary doctorates from Wellesley College, John Hopkins University, Haverford College and the University of Edinburgh and her work has been translated into 30 languages. So I'm delighted to welcome Jim Amanda Adichie. Thank you. So, welcome to Dublin. Thank you. Um, I want to kind of, if I may, be slightly old-fashioned and chronological about it and go quite kind of back to the start if you like one of the things that I knew about you anyway but now I get to ask you in person is that you actually started doing with medicine in college so what was the moment where you kind of made the leap or there was a trigger and you kind of went this isn't for me I think I'll do something else. Um, I think
0: I knew even before I went to medical school that it wasn't for me hmm. but I went anyway and before I go any further I just want to say thank you all for being here it's Lovely to be in Dublin. Um, thank you. Thank, thanks for turning out. It's, it's, it's always nice when people actually come. So thank you. <laughs> it helps. <laughs> it helps. And I'm happy to be here. And I, I've been writing since I was old enough to spell. I knew that writing was what I wanted to do. But I also grew up in a very um, ambitious, sensible, educated, middle class Igbo household which meant that you needed to earn a living. You had to be sensible. And writing just didn't Not make sensible. sense. And, and when you do well in school, they tell you you have to be a doctor. So I went along with it. And I had it all planned out. I was going to be a psychiatrist, and I was going to use my patient stories for my fiction. <laughs> and <laughs> Because I thought if I'm going to be a doctor, I might as well make you walk for my fiction. Right? Yeah. But one year in, I just knew. I, knew, I thought I could, I, I thought I could you know, go through it and just keep writing at some point. But... I just couldn't do it. Yeah, I just you know you. I think it was maybe a semester in, and I'm writing poetry at the back of my notebooks, and I don't fundamentally care.
1: Yeah,
0: I think medicine is, is noble. You have to care. Yeah,
1: yeah. You've just reminded me of the, the, the great Felicudi. I think all his family were doctors as well. They were all medical people. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were getting interested in writing and you were reading, what kind of stuff? Were you reading? What kind of books were you finding? And again, this, maybe there's something we'll talk about later, about not mm. seeing yourself in the work that you mm. were reading.
0: When I, was mu- when, I was, um, when I was much younger, I read children's books that were not about Nigerians or Africans. And I think this is true for most African children, that we don't see ourselves in the, in the children's books we read. Um, and so we grew up thinking that literature is something in which white people do things. And when I started writing at a very young age, I was writing the kinds of things I was reading. So I was writing about white children playing in the snow I had, uh, <laughs> at a time when I had never seen snow.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and I, I didn't think that books should have things like Gary, the foods that we ate, and rice and yams. I thought books had to have cucumber sandwiches <laughs> and that people had to drink ginger Giger beer. beer. And yeah. So that's what I did. <laughs> and... Um, and actually, until I started reading African fiction, and, and the number of, there's a, a novel called The Dark Child. That's the English translation. Sometimes it's translated to The African Child by Kamara Lai, who was from Guinea. And it's, it's this sort of very beautiful, um, nostalgic account of a, of a young African boy's childhood. And I remember reading it very young and just finding in it something that resonated with me it was still exotic because yes. it was village life, which was not my life, but still, it, the Africanness of it touched something in me and I think gave me a kind of confidence. And then I went on to read Chinua you know, Chebe and Florent Wapa and, and just a wide range of African authors. And I, and I like to think that doing that gave me permission. Because yeah. it made me realize you know what, your life as it is and the life that you know is very worthy of literature. But at the same time, I loved those English books I read. Right? I, yeah. I adored Enid Blyton. Yeah. Absolutely loved The Famous Five.
1: And you were a big Mills and Boone's fan,
0: which I... Oh, when I, I think <laughs> when I was... And it's nice to talk about Mills and Boone, especially yeah. in Europe, because, yeah. <laughs> because in the US, people are like, Mills and Boone, but here people know what I'm talking yeah. about. And you know how there yeah. were the different kinds? yeah. So there's Milsambun Temptation, where you, saw a, where you saw a bit of breast on the cover, and the woman was like that. right? And then you would read it, and you didn't want your mother to see you reading it. I read, I think, every published Milsambun book by the time I was 14. All of them. I really think so. I went through those things really quickly.
1: Okay.
0: But I like to think that even then, I recognized something ridiculous in them. You know, in the way that you can enjoy something but still yeah. realize that it's bullshit. <laughs> that, I think that's how... And, and so I've always loved the idea of the, long, the love story, which is why I think a lot of my, lot of my work is about love. Yeah. But I've always wanted love stories in which the woman also has agency. Yeah. Right? Where it's not that she says, no, 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 then he drags her and then she and she's melts. she's beating on and, his
1: chest, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm
0: thinking, you know, she has her desires and yeah. her knees and she can articulate them.
1: yeah. When you came to write *Purple Hibiscus*, and you were quite—I mean, you were quite young—you were working on that in your early twenties. I think you were mid twenties when it was published. How did you feel about writing it at that age? Did you feel fear? Did you feel free? Did you feel ready? How did you feel about that book?
0: Um, did I feel well? I think because I had written before *Purple Hibiscus*, I had I'd written this very thick novel, which was terrible and which was, which was also not sincere. So I had been in the U.S. I had decided that I wanted it to be published in America because my first book actually was published in Nigeria. I wrote a play and was published in Nigeria. And so in the U.S., I'd done the research, and I read all the contemporary books that were out at the time, and many of them were sort of the immigrant story where people come from, you know, India, um, China, Japan, and they, f- they fall in love with America, and America sort of becomes this the culmination of everything that they imagined. And so I wrote that. I just inserted Nigerian characters in place of the Chinese and the, and the, and the Japanese. And, and it felt very false, because that wasn't the story that was calling me, but I felt that this was the story that would get me published. Yeah. And I sent it off to agents and publishers and got rejection after rejection after rejection. How did that feel? <sighs> Terrible. I felt... I remember my first rejection. I was... <sighs> I remember it even now. I was, um, I was stunned because I really thought that I had written this fantastic novel and what I was expecting was to have all of these publishers call me and then I would sit back and decide <laughs> which of them to pick. But instead, <laughs> instead, and it wasn't even nice rejection letters that were handwritten. It was the form kind. So
1: The cut and paste kind.
0: It was, I, I, I was really stunned and... I'm almost thrown back a bit, but I also remember thinking, oh, it's just that this publisher doesn't know what a good thing is, and so I sent it off to the next one. Yeah. And then another rejection came, <laughs> and then a third, and then a fourth. And I don't remember when I realized, you know, it's best to just put this thing away because it's not right. Yeah. And I'm yes. so grateful I did, because I think maybe if I had kept trying, maybe somebody out of pity would have published it, and it would have been a disastrous way to start. Yeah. And I think especially now, I'm at a place in my life where it's so important for me to be true and to be, and to, to be authentic, yeah. and, and that book was not authentic. And so I put it aside, and, and, and even then, Purple Hibiscus was sort of in my, in my body. It was calling me. I had left home. I had been in the U.S. for maybe three years at the time. I was in Connecticut. I hated the winter, and I, I was so nostalgic for home. And really, the, the story that was calling me was the story about not just sort of family and political upheaval, but also just about home, about a very kind of romanticized nostalgia for childhood and, and for this town where I grew up, this place that I loved that had then started to go into a certain kind of decay. So I started writing Purple Hibiscus, and it, it, it wrote itself because it wanted to happen, and it felt almost magical. And so the writing process for me was quite joyful. It made me very happy. But afterwards, I went into major panic because I thought now nobody will publish this one. It's not about America. Mm. You know, and Americans like to be liked. And there's really nothing about Purple Hibiscus that yes. was about liking America. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought nobody's going to publish this. But then I tried, so I started sending it out. And rejections and re- rejections and rejections came. There's a nice agent who said to me, um, he wrote, this was a nice letter. So at least I had better um, responses from Purple Hibiscus. Yeah. And he said to me, I like your writing, but I would like you to take away the African material, use the African material as background, and set the story in America. And honestly, for a minute, I thought, wait, how can I do that? So the story is set in Osuka, small town Nigeria how do I make that about America? I mean, seriously, I really did think about, wait, wait how, how can I do it? But then I realized, this is absolute nonsense. There's no yeah. way I can do it, the yeah. story. Yeah. So I put that away. And then finally, an agent said to me, I will take a chance on you. And she um, signed me on. And, and I think even to her shock, somebody wanted to publish it in two weeks. I think even she was startled. Yeah. <laughs> I certainly was. Yeah. But so the question about how I felt... The writing of it felt right. It felt true. The looking for publication was just fraught with, yeah, with uncertainty.
1: Yeah. Obviously, Americana is a different kind of book because we are in America, and it is another love story in a lot of ways. But there's a sense in that when you talk about the immigrant, and there was a there's a, a wonderful line that I really like which is um, the only reason you say that race was not an issue is because you wish it was not. We all wish it was not, but it's a lie. I come from a country where, we, where race was not an issue. I did not think of myself as black, and it only became black when I came to America. And I think that's very close to your own experience, yes. that you didn't have, think of yourself as a certain kind of colour until yeah. you, that realisation. I suppose that with that realisation is that if you go somewhere else there's going to be an identification of race but possibly also racism as part of that. Yep. yep. Yeah. So what was it like when you, you started to notice your, yourself in the, in the US within a different culture?
0: It was a... I mean, when I first went to the US, I... And it's one thing to know America in terms of pop, popular culture. So I'd watch the films, read the books. But to go there, you realise you don't actually know it because it's not quite what you see in the films. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> I don't know when I realized. I realized quite quite quickly that I had taken on this new identity. And you don't have a choice. It's thrust on you. Yeah. So I remember very early on an African-American man in Brooklyn said to me, sister, which of course was about being black because that's what black people say to one another. And I remember just feeling this almost immediate sense of um, just wanting to take myself away from it. So I wasn't very nice, yeah. because what I was thinking was, I'm not your sister.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, I thought, I, um, I have three brothers, I know who they are, I know where they are, you're not I'm one of them. I'm their sister, yeah. I'm their sister, and you're not one of them. And, and now, looking back, I feel kind of ashamed of that, because what it was, was really my recognition of racism. Because I knew that to be black, and to accept blackness as an identity, meant then that I was opening myself to be the the victim of racism, you know. And, and, and so, in other words, if being black was neutral, I wouldn't have re- reacted that way. But I knew it wasn't neutral. Yeah. And um, and obviously now, whenever I tell the story, I like to, I, I wish I could find him, because I'd be like, yo, brother. <laughs> right. but, but, but I wasn't, I didn't understand America at the time. So yes. it, took, it took a long time. I started reading African-American history. I... You know, I, I needed to learn and understand, and then I took on. I made the choice to take on this identity that had been thrust on me, but also decided to to want to kind of explore it and deconstruct it and, and because it isn't one thing you know to be a black person in America who doesn't have the history of slavery is a very different experience and And I would say actually an easier experience. Yeah. I think to be the descendant of slaves in a country that was built on slavery is a very difficult thing. Yeah. And I don't think America has really faced its, its, the, the fact that really, the, that at its very founding was racism. It's not something that really has been faced in the yeah. US. And so for me, writing Americana was partly about wanting to write about race in the way that one isn't supposed to write about race in a novel which is directly. <laughs> I think that, that one of the rules of um, literary fiction is that you're supposed to embrace such ideas as nuance and complexity, and, and often those are ways of remaining comfortable, yeah. not being uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, and you, do, you talk about the African-American versus the American-African
2: yeah.
1: as well, and even, I think, if you look at, I mean, the characters in that book... Um, there's a conversation about um, Efemulo and um, Obinze. if Am I saying that correctly? Um, that they have left in that this idea of the, the good immigrant. When you know Nika Shukla talks about the good immigrant, then, that they're not fleeing, you know, starvation or famine. They're, they're fleeing something at one point, the oppressive lethargy of choicelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it about their experience? I mean, people make assumptions, and I think it's, it's it's often more immediate when you look a certain way. I mean, the Irish have been the immigrants of the world, but they were also good immigrants because they looked a certain way. Yeah. Um, and what is that? what did you want to say about that in this particular novel? Because they're, they're, the things that they're grappling with, they're the things that most people are grappling with, yeah. but it's within a framework yeah. of race as well. I mean,
0: so when I was writing American, I knew that the, the African immigrant story that most people are familiar with is the story of the African who's fleeing war, extreme poverty, disease, and also often meant then that the response to an African immigrant was immediate pity. But that's not the story I know. And, and the people I know, that's not their story. And I felt that there was a kind of invisibility to the, to the other story of the African that, that is, and not even just an economic migrant, but just a person who dreams of something more in the way that human beings have dreamt for you know thousands of years. And that kind of feeling that I don't have many choices where I am, and there's, there's something more out there, right? That idea that there's, you know, there's the, the, the life is more interesting on the other side. Whether or not it is doesn't matter. It's yeah. that you think it is, yeah. and so you want to go. And, and so I wanted to tell that story, and also to tell the story of Africans who, in their countries, are sort of you know, middle class and have certain privileges, and then make the choice to leave and then come to, to the UK, to the US, I'm sure even to Ireland, and suddenly that cleaning toilets. And what it does, because in some ways that's the only thing that you have access to, at least at the beginning. Yeah. And what it does to you and to your sense of self and, um, and to your relationship with other people. Right? So there's a scene in Americana where where Obinze is in the UK and he, there's another Nigerian who doesn't want him to come too close because Obinze is too familiar. And, and for me, there's a sadness in that. And I kind of wanted to to, to write about it, to yeah. explore it.
1: Um, we, we're going to definitely get a reading in a moment or two bef- uh, from Ijuwele. But I, before we go into that, I love the idea that um, you said that when you were 14, somebody used the F word to you F-word being <laughs> feminist. Um, what happened then, and what was the realisation, and why did that... I mean, we all know why that word has bad connotations because we're told all the time, if you are one. Um, what was that like?
0: Um, you know, I didn't know what the word meant. So my dear, dear friend, Okoloma, who's, who's passed away, but whose spirit is still very much alive with all of us who love him, we would argue endlessly. Okoloma and I both felt that we knew more than everybody else because we'd read books, and our knowledge, of course, was completely half-baked. And so we'd have these arguments, and I, re- I, and I don't remember what the argument was, but Okoloma just sort of looked at me and he said, you know, you're a feminist. And I remember that he said it in this tone, it w- whatever feminist was was not a good thing. <laughs> and I remember, because I didn't want Okoloma to... to feel that he had won the argument. I didn't want him to know. I didn't know what feminist was. So I was like, oh, I'm not a feminist. And then I kept going on and on. And I was thinking he might have to look this up the minute I get home. (laughs) So I get home and I look it up. And I was like, yes, that's bloody well what I am. I mean, you know, why did he say it in that tone? And I think that was really my first sort of, um, that was my first meeting (laughs) with the word feminist, which, you know, it's now a word that haunts my every... yeah
1: yeah i mean it's a word that it it got very buzzwordy for a while and then also when people hear the word there there are lots of negative connotations Ah. which is that it's that it's it's white and it's white middle class women and it's it's whereas it's meant to be a much more intersectional thing um but but that's the
0: thing that happens in the west yeah right yeah where in, in nigeria the connotations are different Equally negative, but different.
1: Different, yeah.
0: It's that you're looking to destroy marriages, it's that you're angry, it's that you're terrible, it's that you're arrogant, it's that you're. It's all kinds of things. In the West, what I find interesting is that idea somehow that. um, (laughs) You know, I think because Western feminism is the feminism that's been most documented, the idea that it's the only feminism is ridiculous. So there are people who say to me, so what is your relationship with, with the first wave and the second wave? (laughs) I don't even know what the hell... Yeah. It. No, I kind of know because I've had to read the books now, but
1: <laughs> I, I don't have a relationship
0: with them because that's not my story, you yeah. know?
1: Yeah, It's more lived but, experience than academic experience. Yes, yes. Yeah.
0: But, I, but I also understand that there are many women in the West who are black and who are Asian, and basically who are not white who for a long time felt excluded, because sort of when, when feminism was talked about, it often meant white middle-class women, sure. while you had all these women who were black, Asian, you know, whatever the other race, who also had these issues, but somehow weren't part of the narrative, right? So I kind of think that the criticism of, of Western feminism, that, that, there's, that, that it's valid, it's valid criticism, but also sometimes I feel that it can become... I mean, I remember reading a review of a a book written by a white woman. And the criticism of the book was, oh, it's just about a white woman's experience. And I remember thinking, yeah, but... She's a white woman. What else do we want the book to be about? It's a memoir. Yeah. You know, it was a memoir about if her were life. If you more
1: problematic if she culturally appropriated somebody else's See, thing. But, but yeah. that's
0: part of the problem with the, the liberal discourse. I mean, it, it's so easy to get tangled up in. So on the one hand, this woman was criticized, "Oh, you're just writing about the white woman's experience." It's a memoir. She's a white woman. <laughs> She's See, allowed would, to. It would be about a white woman's experience. Yeah. On the other hand, there's always talk of inclusiveness, which is a wonderful and necessary concept, but which I think is often abused. So on the one hand, you're told, oh, cultural appropriation is terrible. On the other hand, you write a memoir about your life, you're told, oh, it's just about white women. Oh, what about the women in Bangladesh who are not paid money for making your sweaters? But then if you do write about them, you're told, oh, this is culture. So it just becomes the thing where I feel like we all need to just calm down, right? And what I really would like to see in the sort of discourse of feminism is the idea that everybody's story counts, right? And that everybody gets to be on the stage. Not that, not that the white woman should somehow include the story of the Bangladeshi, because that I would actually kind of find annoying.
1: Yeah.
0: I don't think people should write about what they don't know, no. right? And I think there's value in everything. In other words, um, and, and I was reading something else where... This, um, woman, white woman was asked, well, tell me about feminism and she goes, oh, it's not about me because I'm white and privileged. It's about all those poor minority women and I remember just rolling my eyes until they were about to fall out <laughs> my head because I thought well, no, it's about you too, right? It's important I think for us not to turn the idea of inclusiveness into something that becomes about the goodness of the privileged yeah. you know? Yeah. Because it really is also about the white-privileged woman. I mean, the thing about it is, yes, she has white privilege because she's white, but she gets crap because she's, she's a, woman.
1: a woman. Yeah. You, you have also said... Um, and I think this is interesting, that sometimes you get angrier about sexism than racism.
0: Why? Um, because, because, because the people I love know and get racism. Right? The people... Who are close to me, who are both black and not black, when we talk about racism, everybody gets it. Mm. With sexism, I find that I'm always being asked to prove it, to make a case, to explain. To I'm always, and these are with people I care about. Right? There's always the ever so slight tension that they're thinking, ah, it's not really gender. You, you really think it was because that woman, that she was a woman, really? <laughs> Right. So I'm constantly sort of having to say, well, look, here's why. And, and it gets emotionally exhausting yeah. because there are things that you want to seem self-evident to people because they're self-evident to you, and they're not. And, and then you start to wonder why people are blinded to something that seems to you so unjust. Yeah. And then it, it, it's exhausting, and then suddenly you're enraged, and then that rage is exhausting, and then you want to engage further because you want to convince them, but then you suddenly think, no, I'm not going to convince them, there's no point. So it just, it's not pleasant. It's not pleasant. And and I find that that happens a lot with sexism. If I want to, um, being Nigerian means that that just taking a glass of water and sipping it and putting it down, it can cause noise with Nigerians. Oh, she did it in a feminist way. That is terrible. (laughs) Would
1: you like to demonstrate the feminist way to drink a glass of water? I'm very curious now. (laughs) Um, would you like to read something for us, even a little bit?
0: Um, yes, yeah, so yeah. I'll read from Diage Awele, which is crack a, a long email I wrote to a friend years ago, which has now become a little book. And it's called Diage Awele, or a Feminist Manifesto in 15 Suggestions. <coughs> um, I think I'll just, I'll read, the, so I'll read from the first suggestion. Be a full person. Motherhood is a glorious gift, but you do not define yourself, uh, I'm sorry, but do not define yourself solely by motherhood. Be a full person. Your child will benefit from that. The pioneering American journalist, Merlene Sanders, who was the first woman to report from Vietnam during the war, and who was the mother of a son, once gave this piece of advice to a younger journalist. Never apologize for walking. You love what you do, and loving what you do is a great gift to give your child. I find this to be so wise and moving. You don't even have to love your job. You can merely love what your job does for you. The confidence and self-fulfillment that come with doing and earning. It doesn't surprise me that your sister-in-law says you should be a traditional mother and stay home. That Trudy can afford not to have a double-income family. People will selectively use tradition to justify anything. Tell her that a double-income family is actually the true Igbo tradition because not only did mothers farm and trade before British colonialism, trading was exclusively done by women in some parts of Igbo land. She would know this if reading books were not such an alien enterprise to her. Okay, that snack was to cheer you up. I know you are annoyed, and you should be, but it really is best to ignore her. Everybody will have an opinion about what you should do, but what matters is what you want for yourself and not what others want you to want. Please reject the idea that motherhood and walk are mutually exclusive. Our mothers worked full-time while we were growing up, and we turned out well. At least you did. The jury is still out on me. In these coming weeks of early motherhood, be kind to yourself. Ask for help. Expect to be helped. There is no such thing as a superwoman. Parenting is about practice and love. I do wish, though, that parent had not been turned into a verb, which I think is the root of the global middle-class phenomenon of parenting as one endless, anxious journey of guilt. (laughs) Give yourself room to fail, A new mother does not necessarily know how to calm a crying baby. Don't assume that you should know everything. Read books, look things up on the internet, ask older parents, or just use trial and error. But above all else, let your focus be on remaining a full person. Take time for yourself. Please do not think of it as doing it all. Our culture celebrates the idea of women who are able to do it all but does not question the premise of that praise. I have no interest in the debate about women doing it all, because it is a debate that assumes that caregiving and domestic work are singularly female domains, an idea that I strongly reject. Domestic work and caregiving should be gender neutral, and we should be asking not whether a woman can do it all, but how best to support parents in their dual duties at home and at work. Second suggestion, do it together. Remember in primary school, we learned that a verb was a doing word? Well, a father is as much a verb as a mother. Trudy should do everything that biology allows, which is everything but breastfeeding. Sometimes, mothers so conditioned to be all and do all are complicit in diminishing the role of fathers. You might think that Chudi will not bathe her exactly as you would like, that he might not wipe her bum as perfectly as you do, but so what? What is the worst that can happen? She will not die at the hands of her father. Seriously, he loves her. It's good for her to be cared for by her father. So look away. Arrest your perfectionism. Still your socially conditioned sense of duty. Share child care equally. Equally, of course, depends on you both, and you will have to walk it out, paying equal attention to each person's needs. It does not have to mean a literal 50-50 or a day-by-day scorekeeping, but you'll know when the child care walk is equally shared. You'll know by your lack of resentment. Because when there is true equality, resentment does not exist. I think I'll stop there.
1: I find that the the idea of emotional labour the stuff that women are supposed to do and it reminded me I I went to this writing retreat the first time I ever went there and there was a woman there it was her, her first time there and she said that she had made a week's worth of dinners for her husband and put them in the freezer which... I guess was a kind gesture, but also really annoyed me that he wouldn't just let her go off and do her, her writing. Um, where are the structural things? I mean, we can go, okay, that's patriarchy, but then you interestingly say that it's tradition that people get away with murder with this sort of stuff just by saying, no, no, it's the women who, that, who do that stuff? Is it just those two things or is it just something else?
0: Wait, what do you mean? Uh, what as, in, as
1: in, the kind of, that women are the expectation that they will do the housework, that they yeah. will have the dinner ready, or they will have the, there will be one income earner that they won't necessarily work, or those kind of old fashioned things that still, let's face it, persist. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: They still do. I think even actually to call them old fashioned is because there's also a sense in which it's all, almost become modern in a way, which is to say that actually the class of women who increasingly do not walk... So in other words, poor women walk because they have to walk. So they don't really have the option of being total to stay home yeah. so, so I find in the West and in, in various countries, in the U.S., that wealthy, educated, upper-middle-class women often don't walk. Um, they make the choice it's ostensibly a choice to sort of take care of the kids. And I, and I think it's, it's more a product of a society that isn't family-friendly. Right? So they have to walk because, sometimes because childcare is difficult or because the walk hours are crazy so they don't get to see their family. And I just, I just wish it were different. In other words, <laughs> what we need to maybe be thinking about is have people walk humane hours, <laughs> um, have childcare not be something that is ridiculously expensive. And then maybe women would not be making this choice. So I guess my point is really I'm not convinced that it's a choice yeah. for many of these women. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, that idea somehow that w- women themselves, I think, because of the way they're socialized, put a lot of pressure on themselves. There's a lot of guilt about, am I a good mother? Am I, am I doing what I'm supposed to do? And, and women feel very, um, women often feel guilty about wanting the things they want. Women feel... Um, and society doesn't help because they're just all of these messages that you get. So if you have ambition, you're supposed to temper it, especially if you're a your mother. You're, supposed to, you're not supposed to talk about your ambition. You're supposed to talk about how your children mean everything. right? But, but the truth is that being human is complex. Your children can mean everything, and you can also have ambition. You know? yeah. but, but I think that there's a lot of... Um, I think I think there's a lot that I wouldn't even call old-fashioned. I think there's just still f- these ideas are still very potent in, in our society. still very potent. Yeah. When I went to um, where did I go? I forget where. Somewhere in Europe, and I was struck by how many how often the women would say, "Yes, my child goes to daycare, but just two days a week."
1: So they were they were feeling guilty. Didn't they? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah.
0: And I was struck by that. I heard that from different women at different places. And I thought, my goodness, yeah. um, how quick they were to add that because I could sense that it was to forestall judgment. And I thought you know, it really... We, we should remember that wonderful title of that wonderful book by that wonderful woman. It takes a village. Yeah. It really does. And, and, of course, my being African means that literally. I come <laughs> from a tradition in which it took a village, right? <laughs> um, and, and now I want to create that village. So having a child, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old, and, and in many ways I find myself, you know, despite being Madame Feminist of the world, I do find myself sometimes being confronted by that sense of guilt where I I changed things in my life because of my daughter. I made changes that I I chose to change, right? But I I knew that it was important for me to remain a full person because I wouldn't be a good mother if I wasn't a full person. I couldn't then stop doing the things I was doing. (laughs) I couldn't, you know, I couldn't stop doing the things I was doing I couldn't I wouldn't stop for example travel but what I would then do is you know I would say to people who are asking me to come look I can't stay longer than two days partly because I don't want her to like her father more than me that's (laughs) that's really what this is about but um (laughs) but
1: I've talked to 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 lots of women who happen to write who, who say that it's Frequent that they're often expected to, to, to not, to, like in interviews, to talk about their family lives and their children. But they're often asked, Who's minding your children? I mean, nobody says that to, you know, Colson Whitehead or to Martin Amos or whoever it is. Like, men just don't get asked that question. Oh,
0: they, oh, they never do. They're yeah. not even expected to know that they have children. <laughs> so, So the, the few times that a man even talks about children we're like oh great isn't it great so so you know increasingly I don't have a lot of patience for that excessive praise that men get when they do things that they're supposed to do anyway like minding their own children yeah Yeah. I really think that what we what we need to do more of is just make it ordinary we should start to expect it. men should be asked when there's a new baby in the family how are you coping how are you no we really need to we need to do it more and more so it becomes normal yeah because, because I think it's a problem. And I, I do know many women who write who, who, for whom it's really difficult because, because even for many progressive couples, the, the, our society still is so steeped in, in the idea of gender roles that it's in the end the woman on whom most of the, the burden of, of family sort of just... Family walk is on the woman. So she's walking, she's doing childcare, she knows the children's teachers, she's the one who knows where the socks are. She, and disappointments,
1: the whole thing, yeah.
0: It's a lot. It's too much. And yeah. I think there's an emotional, uh, I think that women pay an emotional price yeah. for it. I really do. And, and also, you remember, to, to keep in mind that we, all, we also live in a culture, and I, and I mean a global culture, that doesn't allow anger, doesn't allow female anger that really punishes female anger. Right. So if a man is angry, we you know, we might criticize him, but we don't kind of make it seem as though he's, he's failed at something fundamental to being a man. Yeah. But to be an angry woman, goodness. Right, that's yeah. not that's yeah. you're not allowed. Yeah. And and you know and, and also and this is where the sort of the race comes in, to be an angry white woman is terrible to be an angry black woman yeah, yeah, forgets it yeah yeah
1: it's a stereo it's a stereotype yeah, yeah, it, it,
0: yeah. It, it just forgets it. You're, yeah. you you know you're you're just you're subhuman yeah and and therefore you're open to every kind of criticism you know and, and so i think it, it's it, it's these layered things this is why i think feminism is so important in the world because it's really not a question of can women vote and can women be president of a bank it's for me i'm increasingly interested in the in in the way that the value systems that we have in the world right? the way that women do all the work women pay an emotional price and then women are not even allowed to be angry about it.
1: Yeah, right? yeah so. for sure. Um, this makes me think, and, and I was asking you if you were, wanted to talk about this, and you said that you, you would like to, which is there's a lot of very angry and hurt women in Ireland at the moment because we have a huge referendum coming up next week. Um, and I was explaining some things, uh, stats and facts, and the fact that we're even having this in 2018, does it shock you that we're still talking about women's bodily autonomy in Ireland and how strict the law currently is and that it's, it's quite prohibitive and yeah. dangerous? I,
0: I really was shocked. I do find it shocking. And I didn't know until I first read about it a few weeks ago in the Financial Times. There was a long piece about it. And I was so stunned. I actually went online and started looking it up because I thought, really? It just felt so retrograde. I know that in many countries in Europe, that there are still sort of these little um, constraints that even those I find quite problematic. The the countries in which a woman has to wait a week or two weeks or something as though somehow she doesn't know her own mind. But to think of this where women have died, because I mean, I find it really actually quite inhumane. But you know, fundamentally for me, it reads as just a lack of value for the lives of women. Because... Because, you know, but it's true because there's, and I think we, and I think the things about the debate that I sometimes find um, just really sad. In, in the US, it's similar where when people talk about abortion, there are two sides that are screaming at each other. And I just think the first fundamental thing to remember is that nobody enjoys abortions, no. right? So this idea that they say things like, you know, it's not like women wake up and like, oh, I'll have an abortion today, fun, yeah. right? Nobody, nobody enjoys them. I mean, nobody sort of wants to go have a cup of tea and an abortion. <laughs> but, but abortions for women at certain stages in their lives become necessities. And, and the woman should be able to have one. And I think this sort of conversation where people say, oh, um, indiscriminate, <laughs> people are going to run off. I mean, it, and, and I also think, you know, there's a difference between a dependent life and an independent life. Right? And when people people will use scripture, and and I found myself at some point during the debates in the US sort of going to examine scripture, and I found a bit in Exodus that you can use to make the case for a woman's right to do something with her body. Do you want me to tell you that bit of, go of on, scripture? Go on, go
1: on. I can't wait.
0: <laughs> no, I won't tell you that bit because that's really not the point. I think the point. Yeah. I don't think. <laughs> I think it's really a point about human rights. I don't think that we necessarily have to use religion. And I think that people. Who don't want to have abortions don't have to have abortions. That's right? the crux of it, yeah. So, so that, I mean, we should let people who want to have them and people who don't want to shouldn't have to. But we should also, I think, in general, what we need in the world is just to grow a culture where we value women. If we valued women as full human beings, we would not be having the debate that you're having in Ireland today. Yeah.
3: For sure. We wouldn't.
1: Mm. Well said. Um... So much of this book is about the the values that we try to instill, that we we need to instill earlier and earlier in young girls so that they don't pick up the learned behaviour or to be likeable, to be nice, to please men. Um, There's a a wonderful line in it, which is um, we teach girls to to shrink themselves, to make themselves smaller. We say to girls, you can have ambition, but not too much. You should aim to be successful, but not too much. And I think... Related to what we teach them is what they see. And, is, and it's a line that's trotted out a lot, which is that if you can't see it, yeah. you can't be it. And I think that that's so crucial for yeah. girls to see that. I mean, yeah. what was your experience? Were there women yeah. around you? And I don't necessarily mean famous people, I mean family people yeah. or people where you live that yeah. you were looking at going,
0: yeah. that's
1: the kind of person I'd like to I mean,
0: be. Yeah, I think it's so true. If you can't see it, you can't be it. I really think it's true. Yeah. And I've heard from so many women who've said, because I saw so-and-so, I thought I could do it. When I was, and I think I grew up on a university campus. I saw women who were professors. And so I think from a very early age, I saw that women were capable of... And, and both my parents walked. My father was a professor. My mother was non-academic staff. But they would come back at the same time, 3.30, have lunch together. And so it seemed to me a very ordinary thing the idea of, of you know, daddy and mommy go off to work in the morning and come back at the same time, and then my mother rose through the ranks and became the first woman to be registered at the university. So she was sort of in charge of the entire administration, and she would come home and she and my father would talk, and they spoke as equals. Actually, they always spoke as equals, even before she was registered. Yeah,
1: and that's a visible thing. So when you see that, you learn that's what the respect for relationships is.
0: And, and, And it was normal for me. But at the same time, I knew what was happening outside my own family and outside the university campus in which I lived. Actually, even within the university campus, I knew that there were families in which the man was abusive to the woman. There were families in which the woman was just like this timid person who didn't do anything. So I saw all of that. So it's not as if I didn't know that there was the other side of things, right? But, but growing up in the family that I... Growing up with my parents, I, I think that probably really um, helped me. But, you know, I also just think that I have my great-grandmother's spirit. I think I did not get the memo from birth that women are inferior. I just didn't get it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Good. Um, the... Obviously, this book is talking... It's very specific. It came from a specific idea of talking to a friend's little, yeah. little girl. Um, but so much of what the problems that we're facing is the way we talk to boys or don't talk to boys. Mm-hmm. And I think you talk about we put, masculin- we put boys in a cage and it's yeah. to do with masculinity. But in terms of the way men and young men in particular speak about women, and people talk about porn culture and rape culture and these things, and they're useful terms, but is it something that can be solved in a global way, or is it something that literally starts with parents sitting down with their boys and go, you know, you need to learn how to respect women, you need to learn about consent, you need to learn about those crucial things. They're as important as going to school. Yeah.
0: I don't know. I mean, I... I I think it's all of those things. I think parents... I think it has to start at home. Mm. But it's also a larger thing, because you're telling your five-year-old boy to, you know, be respectful and, and all of that... And then the athlete that he worships represents something else entirely. And so then it becomes a problem because, because for him the athlete is, is aspirational. And so the athlete is, isn't behaving as his parents are telling him to behave. He thinks his parents are uncool and the athlete is cool. So I tend to think that it's, we just need more men like Barack Obama in the world. You know, we, need, <laughs> we need more Barack Obamas. We need men who are, who are cool, like Obama. Yeah. Very cool. who identify as feminist, who are smart and funny and charming and all of those things, because then little boys can be like, yes, he's, you know, he's somebody I can be like. Yeah. Because I really do think that that whole idea of, of seeing what is possible, it's so important. Yeah. And, and just watching boys, so now that I have a child, so when I wrote this, I didn't, and so I could sort of pontificate some sort of things. Now, now I have one and I realize it's, it's really difficult. And, and I, we, I take her to the playground and I'm watching, because I'm, I'm always collecting material, being a fiction writer. So I'm sort of eavesdropping on other parents' conversations. I'm watching what they're doing with their kids, right? You know, and I'm making notes on my iPhone. And I find, even now, there's a difference in the way little boys are treated and little girls are treated. In what way? The, the, the little boys get more space and more room. The little girls are still told, be nice. No, 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 that's too loud. Too, don't be too fast. No, no, slow down. The boys don't get that. Mm. And then the parents will say, oh, you know, he's a boy. He's just so great. But I'm watching them, and I'm watching how they're policing the girls. So it becomes the cycle. Because the girls are told, don't jump on the table. Don't jump, don't jump. The boy jumps. are like, oh, he's a boy. He's jumping. And, and, and I, I watch them, and I think, what's going to happen in 10 years? Yeah. Right? And I really think that we can... Um, there's a lot that nurture can do, I think. And we don't know how much... I really think that we can debate how much is nature. And, and we can debate that, and that's fine. But, but I think I want to focus on what we can control, which is nurture. Yeah. And so I want to focus on nurture. I want us to do as much as we can with nurture. And I don't think we're doing enough. I think even schools... So I have friends who've said to me, watch out when your daughter starts going to school. It doesn't matter where she goes to school in the world, she's going to start adopting all of those stereotypes of what it is to be a girl. She's going to suddenly want the dolls and pink and fluff because that's what happens in school. And I am horrified thinking yeah. about that. Yeah. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do. So I think I'm going to be one of those annoying parents who every day will come into the school and sort of make sure they're not forcing gender stereotypes down my daughter's yeah. throat. Yeah. Because right now, she, we just let her follow her interests. And she, yeah. you know really doesn't, she doesn't care for fluffy things, she wants to play with her father's um, drill box, which I love, because I, my hope is that by the, time she's, by the time she's 10, that she can change my car tires, <laughs> yeah. because I, I, I didn't learn how to change car tires, sadly, yeah. having, yeah. But, you know, so I think, I, I really do think that we, we need to do things differently, and it's, I know it's difficult, because the wall just keeps, it's almost sometimes as though the universe is conspiring against you, I. I walk into a store of children's clothes, and I just think, what the hell? Yeah. Right, the children, little girls' clothes are so sexualized sometimes. I'm just thinking, are you serious? The, you know, they're dresses that are sort of cut as though they're for people who have breasts. I'm like, they don't have breasts. Yeah. You know, they're children. Can we just let them be children? Because the time will come when they can do all of that. So, yeah. so I kind of think that it starts so early, and, and sometimes I'm watching little girls dance. I mean, four-year-olds. And I'm sorry, I'm going to sound like a completely old-fashioned old woman, but I was just like, what the hell? Yeah. Why do they have to? Why does the dance have to be sexualized? Therefore, why why do they have to start now to think about how to, you know, and and it's not how to move their bodies for beauty and strength; it's how to be sexy.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's endless. It's everywhere.
0: It's horrible. And and so, really, what it is again is that idea that femaleness is is to be socialized in a way that is focused on men. Right? It's it's from the time you're small, you know, you. Listen, when I was growing up, you're taught to cook and clean because that's how you keep a husband. So, you know, you start thinking about husband when you're seven, yeah. right? Because you have to learn how to sweep properly, clean properly husband's house. So you stay in the husband's house. When you're a bit older, you're told, you know, it's good to have ambition, but be careful because you don't want to scare the man away. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you make your own money, they tell you, don't show that you have money because then the man will be intimidated, and so it's, it's constantly this idea that female socialization is about men and maleness, and it's, it's exhausting. At some point, you want to think, when is it just about me? When can it be yeah. about me? And male socialization is very different. So I kind of feel that we need to change both and come, get to a middle ground where I really think we should teach men to aspire to marriage. I think I think many women will be happier if we did that. (laughs) Um, I think there will be many more happy marriages.
1: It's it's interesting. Something that occurred to me when I was reading this book when you talk about women defining themselves in terms of men and you mention Hillary Clinton. um, And of course, when I read that, I immediately ran off and checked her Twitter bio because of what you picked up on. What was it that you spotted? And I think you got to talk to her about this recently. So you you called her, right? You kind of gave out to Hillary a little bit. What did you say to her? What was your issue?
0: No, what I said to her, and, you know, I'm a complete Hillary Clinton fan, right? Mm. So it wasn't even so much... It was sort of pointing out how even the most powerful women in the world are subject to this sort of thing, right? And and, and reading about Hillary Clinton and knowing about her, it just seems so incongruous that she would choose to have wife as the first thing on her Twitter bio. And so then it makes you wonder how much of it is about appealing to people who need to see a woman first in domestic terms before they can even think how worthy of anything, right? So I said to her, "Well, here's what I saw on your Twitter bio, you know, and your husband bills doesn't start with husband. Yours starts with wife." And, and I said to her, "Do you think it's fair that I was upset by that?" And she said,
1: "She said since you put it like that, I will change it." (laughs) Wow, (laughs) that's serious. (laughs) Um, I. Because we started a little bit late, uh, we could probably sit here for another hour or so, but there's so many of you here, and we would love to hear your questions. So I think the lights might go up a little bit. There are roving microphones. And because this is such a huge crowd, um, if you could... One one question per person would be great, then we can get to more people. And it's even better if you put a question mark at the end of that question. (laughs) Um, So, uh, and because it's such a big place, if you want to stick up your hand really high, or maybe even... We'll, uh, we'll try and see where you all are. Oh, some, some straight up. Look at this. We'll just get you a microphone. There's a girl here in a leopard print coat, which is actually
2: very nice. Um, we'll just get you the mic.
1: Um,
2: yes, so I do have a question, and there will be a question mark at the end, but I did want to point out that John Banville amazing Irish writer. Of course, everyone here knows him. He wrote a beautiful article about his daughter who invited him to the beach one day to build sandcastles. And she was six. And she said, oh, let's play, let's go and make sandcastles and we'll build sandcastles. And he was like, oh my God, I'm so busy. I have to do writing. Because at the time he was writing for the Irish press and he would write during the day and at night he would be the sub-editor. And she goes, oh, we're going to." we're going to make sandcastles like a real daddy. And he wrote that article, and it was published in the Daily Mail. And I remember at the time feeling so heartbroken for him. But I don't know whether if a woman ever wrote that, they'd be vilified. And the rest of us would be just like, oh, I'm so heartbroken for him because he wrote that. But uh, there is a point. There is a question mark, I promise. So... um, when you were talking, Sinead, about... Um, by the way, I love Sinead as well. <laughs> it's okay, we all do. <laughs> anyway, uh, so when we were talking about women and, you know, feminism and all that, one thing that I did talk about when, we, when I did think about with, uh, you know, middle-class women, and I, I don't want to speak for everyone here, but the vast majority, from what I've seen, we might possibly that, be that way... Working-class women, like if we're looking at the suffragette, women, uh, suffragette movement in the UK and in Ireland, they were working-class. Uh, there's so many campaigns in the UK and in Ireland that have been working-class. Where's the working-class women's voice in this area? And you yourself, you know, you had a, quite a privileged Nigerian background. Is there a champion across the world to get that voice out there, rather than just, you know... I'm not, I'm not an echo chamber. All of us are seeking other voices, but it is important to see outside of ourselves. Okay, Sure, so that's the question, question. mark. That's Ooh. the question mark. Where
1: is the question mark? Yeah. <laughs> is it is that it you want to, say, to see outside
0: of ourselves?
1: Yeah, more working class, more diversity, more underrepresented people, I guess. Yes,
0: I think I said something about thinking it's very important to have every to have everyone be able to come on the stage. In other words, what I have a problem with is the idea that one person should speak for everyone. And it seems to me often that when people are talking about inclusiveness, that's what they mean. And I just don't find that to be convincing. I'd rather hear the stories of people from the people themselves who are going through those experiences. But what I cannot tell you, because I'm not a working-class person, and that's not my background, so I'm not going to sort of sit here and tell you, here's what the working-class story is, but I can tell you that in Nigeria, for example, there are women, working-class women who are fighting battles, who may not call themselves feminists, who often actually will say that they're not feminists, but they actually are, because they're fighting real battles. They're fighting battles about women's inheritance rights. They're fighting battles about ridiculous traditional practices against widows. They're fighting battles about, um, about, about wages. They're fighting battles about um, workers' rights. So they're there. Thank you.
1: Another question? Um, a lot of questions. Are uh, there some near the front here? Or there's somebody there? Okay. We're we'll trying to get people on the balcony as well. So we won't forget about you. Hi. Um, it was great to hear about some of the inspiration you've um, been getting for new fiction at the playground. And I was wondering if you have any new books coming out. <laughs> <laughs> I, would tell you, but,
0: I would tell you, but then I would have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm superstitious about work in progress, so.
1: Okay, superstitious. Um, is there anybody in the balcony who would like to ask a question? Um, there is a lady in the very front row here in the middle over near the exit. Can you see? Do you want to stand up there? Yeah, we get your microphone. Someone just behind you there? Oh. There you go. Perfect.
4: Hi, Amanda.
1: Hello. My Kay. My, na-
4: my name is Adana. I'm your biggest fan.
1: Um. <laughs> <laughs> Could you, sta- could, you stand up? Yeah. could you stand? just so such an inspiration. Could you stand up so we can see you? I'm standing. Uh, we're, sorry, it's, it's, there's so many people. It's like, I can't see her. I can't see either. I'm yeah, it's, it's the lighting, I think. We can't really see that well. Okay.
0: Can you wave?
1: Can you wait? Yeah. You wave? yeah. She's, oh, she's not. She's standing up oh! okay, right Sorry. Oh, oh okay. Oh, I, I thought she was up, up in the balcony. Somebody a microphone too. I think they can can did a double microphone thing. Okay, shoot.
0: No, I see you. We'll see you in a second. We thought you were up in the balcony. Yes.
1: You're next, I promise. Yeah, I see
0: you now. Hi.
4: We see you now. Go for it. Okay. Chimamanda, I'm your biggest fan. And <laughs> I love you so much because I'm Igbo as well. And your, my most favorite book of everything you've authored is Americana because I could relate to Ifemelu growing up in Nigeria as well, which I did before coming here. Um, yeah. So I have to have a question.
0: <laughs> She's Nigerian. This is how we rule. <laughs>
3: Okay.
4: So my question is: in your book, Half of a Yellow Sun, what happened to (laughs) Kainene?
0: Um, I don't know. Okay. (laughs) And and I have to tell you that there are many people who've asked that question, and some of them not as nicely as you have. (laughs) So so thank you for at least being nice about it.
4: What do you mean? What happened to (laughs) Kainene?
0: But you know, so at the end of the book, something what, what happens to her is what happens to a number of families that I found out when I was researching that book, and I found it so haunting that I wanted to try and and replicate that feeling in the reader. I wanted the feeling that I had, hearing from families who, you know, twenty-five years after the war, thirty years, were still hoping, were still hoping because they didn't know. I wanted to try and capture that. So, so honestly, I don't know. Because there are many families who don't know.
4: Yeah. Okay. Thank Thank you. Welcome to Ireland. I love you.
0: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank
4: you. Okay, um, back to the lady on the balcony. Go for it. Hello. Fine. Finally. <laughs> Sorry to keep you waiting. Hello, Chimamanda. Hello. My name is Yemi Adenuga. Kedu?
0: Adenoga. <laughs>
4: Yay. There are loads of Nigerians sitting in this hall today. And I have to say, on behalf of every single one of us, we're utterly proud of you. Thank you. And like we would say in Nigeria, you're repping fantastically. (laughs) So my question. Now, a lot of people, a lot of young ladies, and of course, older ladies follow you because they believe in what you stand for. And they totally trust every single word that you say. Uh, There's been a statement that's been attributed to you about marriage, that um, you've said in times past that marriage is not an achievement. And uh, I would love for you, the people who know that I love you have asked me that question because they know that I believe in the sanctity of marriage and we're like, hey, there you go. Your girl is saying marriage is not an achievement. So what do you have to say about that? So, um, I would love for you to, first of all, you know, let us have an insight into what you think an achievement is mm-hmm. and then where you're coming from in terms of marriage
0: not being an achievement. Right. So, I want to ask you if you think marriage is an achievement.
4: I love that question. <laughs> okay, from my point of view... I totally think marriage is an achievement, the reason being, not everyone is going to get married. The same way not everyone is going to have a degree, not everyone is going to have a PhD. So for people who do not have a degree, it will be unfair of them to say that people who have a degree have not achieved anything. They don't have a degree because perhaps they don't want it, or they cannot get one. So it will be demeaning the achievement of a degree. Same way when you're married, if you're able to keep it and work, it's a lot of work. Being married and staying successful in marriage is as hard as getting a degree.
3: Okay.
4: Yes. So if you're able to make it work and you're successful even as a woman okay. and yet you can make your marriage work,
0: I think that's an achievement. You know... You know, I'm sorry, I could not. I could not disagree more. And you know what? <laughs> what? <laughs> so what? And you know, there's something I'm struck by in your, what you said. You said to be a woman and to be a successful woman and still make your marriage work is an achievement. What you're really saying is that it's an achievement to manage a man's fragile ego. <laughs> that's really what, no, but that's what it is. Because because otherwise, because here's what. I, because otherwise, it shouldn't be. Why, why should being a successful woman and then making a marriage work be something remarkable? Right? Because we realize that the way that the world is set up, men are not taught to aspire to marriage. Women are. I think that's where there's a fundamental problem. Because it's actually women who increasingly define themselves in terms of marriage, in a a way that men don't. And it's, it's women for whom keeping a marriage becomes so important and becomes a reason often to reduce themselves, to give up on their own dreams, to shrink themselves, all for, as Nigerians often say, for peace in my marriage. There are many women who've done things that their hearts don't really embrace, but they do them because they feel the pressure of keeping peace in my marriage. I think that marriage can be a glorious and wonderful thing. I think that marriage, when it's an equal partnership of two people who feel that, that each person's needs are equally important, I think is lovely and wonderful. I do not think it's an achievement. And the reason I don't think it's an achievement is because we live in a world that teaches women and girls to aspire to marriage in ways that I think can be very dangerous to women. I think because of that, there are women who have stayed in abusive marriages, the are women who have died in abusive marriages, because because they don't want to feel the stigma and the shame of not having a marriage. They're women who make terrible choices because they want to have the title of Mrs. Somebody. And the reason they want to have that title is because society rewards you. And we know it's much worse in Nigeria where if you're single, there's just such shaming. There's such shaming. And it's if you're a single woman, not a single man. And And then when you're married, you're sort of lauded as though you've achieved something. I don't think you have. I really don't. I think that marriage is a lovely thing in the way that I think friendships are lovely, in the way that I think family is lovely. If that's the case, do you think having parents, having a loving relationship with parents is an achievement? That also takes (laughs) work. Actually, perhaps even more work than I (laughs) was I really, I don't. I don't think it's an achievement.
1: Um, We'll take another question, maybe somewhere down here at the front. I saw some hands. There's a girl in the third row here do we have a microphone up here do you want to stand up and we'll get you a mic I'll try and get every section there's such a big place
4: hi um, you've written and you've talked about how to raise daughters as as feminists um, i've got two sons um, I'd like to know how you best think we can raise our, our sons, our boys, as feminists,
0: or how to support women as feminists. Oh, I think there should be feminists, not just support women as feminists. I really think that feminism is not something that's just for women. This is what I, I just, I don't. And here's why, because I think, you know, I also think that we feminists have to account for female misogyny which is something we're never too comfortable talking about. We often talk about misogyny as something that only men are guilty of, but women are misogynists too. There are women who just don't like women. I I think that misogyny is in the air we breathe in the world, and all of us are subject to it. And so I think we should raise boys not to think in terms of supporting women who are feminists, but to be feminists themselves, which is... um, to think of women as equal human beings, right? Just to think of women as equal human beings. I, for example, if I had a boy, I don't, but I would expect him to cry. Actually, I would shame him if he didn't cry. (laughs) Um, I would never tell him, if he fell down, if he stumbled and and falls and he gets upset, I wouldn't tell him, oh, be strong, be strong. I would never do that. Um, For me, the strength that I would teach him would be more sort of strength of character, the strength to be courageous about speaking the truth, the strength to... Um, the things that I would praise him for would be things that show good character, not a performance of strength. Because I think a lot of that is hollow. I think there are a lot of young men who are just walking around performing something that's hollow and not true. Right? So I would really... I think, if anything, what I would say is I wouldn't think of boy things. Right? I wouldn't worry if he didn't like, I don't know, toy cars and boy things, maybe. He doesn't have to. That, you know, and and um, I would buy him a pink T-shirt.
1: <laughs> um, would somebody over this side maybe like to ask a question? God, there's so many hands. Um, yes. Hey. Hi. We can just get your mic behind you there. Oh, thanks.
0: <clears throat> oh, sorry. Before I, so one more thing. I, just, I was just thinking about it. One of the things I would really love to see more in men is to have. To, we should give men and boys the language of emotion. Because often from, I hear from so many women in relationships in which they're just pulling their hair out of their heads, because men don't have the language of emotion. Sometimes I think they wish they did, but nobody taught them in the way that women, from the time they're little girls, sort of the language of emotion is something that, that everybody expects of them, and then they therefore grow into it. But men don't. And I, I will start very early to, to teach little boys how okay it is to talk about emotion. And, and you know there'd be a very lucky woman who will end up with that. that um, the, <laughs>
3: Go for it. I just want to say thank you very much uh, in my book club your, your book was the first book we actually actually read so all the women are very jealous of me being here tonight <laughs> um, I want to say thank you for being a voice of people like me that grew up in a middle-class family in Nigeria not knowing that we're black until we come to Europe And I can very much relate to your story about being called. Hi, someone saying, "Hi, sister." When I moved to Germany 30 years ago, I was with my now husband, and a black American guy said to me, "Hi, sister." I actually looked behind me. (laughs) What? I said, "Oh, hi, sister." Oh, hi. And then a few meters, another one said, "Hi, sister." But the third one, I'm like, "Hey, I'm not your sister, okay?" But yeah, it's um, it's really amazing that you live all your life not knowing that you are, people see you in a different way. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to read that in your story. So I could explain to my friends mm-hmm. that, you know, I mean, Nigerians, yeah, we're proud because of our, of our history. But I always tell them there's nothing as good as knowing who you are. I don't go into a room where I have to prove who I am to others. Because when you go into a room, people, we all judge. People judge you but I would not go around living my life having, having to explain to, my, um, to people who I am. And that brings me to my question, which is, I've lived here for 30 years, but I still refer to Nigeria as home, even though I've only been home twice. And when I, in conversation, when I say, oh, I would like to go home, everyone look at me, home? I thought this is home. I'm like, yeah, there's something innate in us that you, you know when you connect to a place, You always see it as your home. So Dublin is kind of home, and Nigeria is home for me. You live in America now, and you live in Nigeria as well. I just want to ask you, with your experience, what is your personal opinion about what's going on in America now, the new America, the Trump America? Can you give your own personal opinion on that, please? Um, The only thing (laughs) I
0: can say is we don't have enough time. (laughs) and so I'm just going to say very briefly that it is temporary. So I wake up every morning and I say to myself, it shall pass. Um, yeah. But you know, the idea of home, it, I think it's important to remember, and I completely understand that we carry home, and often it's, it's not even a real thing, it's an idea. Right? So it's, sometimes it's your childhood, because you go back to Nigeria, it's not the same thing that you left behind. right? And, and, and the Irish will tell you that because they're very good at leaving Ireland, but they carry Ireland with them. <laughs> right, so I think they're third-generation Irish-Americans who sort of still think that Ireland is really where their hearts are. And so I think that's fine. I mean, I don't think it's something that you should even be concerned about, having this idea, carrying Nigeria as home, but also knowing that Dublin is home. But for me, because I live in both places, almost half and half, and I feel very fortunate that I can, I really think of both as home. Um, go- going back to the US sometimes is so is such a relief because I don't have to worry about buying diesel for my generator. <laughs> um, <laughs> but being in Nigeria is also just really wonderful because then I have family and friends and there's just so much more noise.
1: Um, we probably only have time for one more question, I'm afraid. It has to be from the balcony. Three people are gesturing at one woman up there, so I think it has to be her. Um, you at the back there in the white, who's standing up already, who just gets you... A microphone?
0: There is a very enthusiastic sister
1: yeah <laughs> here. Okay, okay, so, uh, how about we do okay, two we'll more? Do two, we'll do two. I'll, we'll I'll do two. be very fair, quick fair enough. Okay. okay. Is somebody getting you a microphone? Wait, no, I see okay. people people yeah. are running. It's getting serious. I can go while she's getting a mic.
4: yeah Hi. Oh, <laughs> Hold on, where are you? I'm over here on the side.
0: Yeah. Over here. Yes. yes. Hi, yeah, so
4: just keep it short. I just want to say, like, uh, your words and your work have changed
0: my life, and I love your Instagram and your style, so thank you. Um, <laughs> and my, my question was, um, like, as we, like, more and more the way we experience the world is more digital and more, like, on the phone, does that change the way you think about place, like, in your writing? Like, a lot of, my, one of my favorite things about your work is how You know, you describe places, even if you've never been to, like, a salon or, you know, Nigeria. Like, I really, I feel like I'm a man. I know what it feels like. But more and more, you can be anywhere. But the way you're really experiencing the world is is digital. Does that change the way you think about your writing and your description of place? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I don't think so. Because I think that it still makes a difference to actually be physically in a place. It still makes a difference. And, and there's a lot about... And I know that the world is becoming very digital and we can sort of, on social media, see things. And, but it's, it's not the same thing as really being there. And, and remember that there's a lot about the digital that is false. It's very easy to invent lives that are not real. Right? And so I don't think so. I think, I'm, I think I'm still very much about trying to use words to immerse a reader in place.
1: Definitely the girl in the the last row yourself. We got your microphone. Excellent. Let's go. Thank you. Um, So my question is,
3: I know a lot of people who would say, oh, I'm an equalist, but I don't want to call myself feminist. And as myself, I'm a proud feminist, but I don't really know how to respond. So my question is, what do you think is the best response in favor of the word feminism?
0: Huh. Um, you mean apart from telling them, shut up? <laughs> no. <laughs> do you know, I, and, and I hear you, and I, I also get that quite a bit, that people who've said, I mean, equalist is one, people who've said humanist to me. People like, why do you have to call yourself a feminist? Just say you're a humanist. I think this is what black people in America get when they say they're all for Black Lives Matter. And somebody tells them, but you know, all lives matter. But that is, in fact, what Black Lives Matter is, right? Because it's recognizing what the problem is. And the problem is that it's black lives that have been devalued in America. And so really, to say that you're a feminist is to recognize the problem, right? It's it's, not that it's the, the, And the problem is that it's women who have been devalued and excluded and oppressed. And therefore, before we can solve a problem, we have to name it. And refusing to name it in it is itself, I think, a symptom of the problem. So if a person is telling you, "I don't want to call myself a feminist," ask them why. Ask them why. I think sometimes it comes from a misunderstanding where people think that to be feminist means somehow that you want women to kill men or something, <laughs> or that you want you know I, I don't even know. I mean I, <laughs> sometimes I, I think that the resistance to that word is really about misogyny. Right? I really think that um, people resist it because. Fundamentally, they don't think women are equal. And, um, so, but, but in general also, I think that, especially for young people, I, want, I like to go to the level of story. I think that theory can be too abstract. So we can, And we can argue semantics, and we can argue language, but often I want to go to the level of story. I like to say that literature is my religion. And so because of that, I want to use story, which is I want to use examples. So... Um, So let's talk examples instead, is what I would say to this equalist. Um, And I would say, you know, and then we can use the the, the things that matter to women and the things that feminists are talking about and ask them, well, here's example one. Do you think a woman has a right to do what she wants to do with her body? Do you think a woman should be paid the same amount for the same kind of work that a man does? Do you have a problem with the fact that the positions of power all over the world, political power, economic power are overwhelmingly occupied by men. Is that a problem? Should it be a problem? Should we have leadership positions that are occupied by people who represent the actual people who live in the world? You know, do you think we should talk about women and reproductive rights? Do you think that the human beings who do the actual work to make sure that our human species continues to exist, do you think we should do something about the fact that they have to go through you know, a period of time in which they are Unable to do certain kinds of work? Do we think their work should be protected? Do you think... So if you use those examples with this equalist, then you'll know whether or not they're feminist.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I have um, one more very quick question for you. (laughs) What is yes in Igbo? Eh. Eh.
0: Eh. Don't fit in a badge. (laughs) (laughs) All right, no, it's eh, the short version, but actually in my dialect, it's eh, yeah. Elia? Yeah.
1: Okay, there we go. Hopefully that's the case on May 25th.
0: Oh, it better be, Ireland. It <laughs> better be.
1: <laughs> uh, thank you all so much for coming. Uh, thank you all to the Festival the Volunteers, this wonderful venue. But mostly, thank you to the amazing Shimamanda Egozi Adichie. Thank
0: you. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you, Shimamanda. You're fantastic.